Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Major General Kelly and Sabre Tom to discuss his career, protecting intellectual properties within AFRL, and what it means to have a 100-pound brain. In three, two, one. Major General Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we were chatting a little bit before this started. You mentioned that you have uh, two full-time jobs. Can you tell us about this? So my uh, day job, I work for uh, Office of Secretary of Defense for Policy. I'm the director of special programs, so all the black roll stuff that we can't talk about on the podcast. Okay, noted. My reserve job is I'm the uh, mobilization assistant to the military deputy for Secretary of the Air Force for acquisition. And we can talk about that yes. stuff, and that, that's, that's, why, that's why we're here today. Yeah. And we also have uh, Sabra Tome here today. Good Rush. morning. <laughs> Sabra was in a podcast earlier with us to talk about student opportunities and growing your career in AFRL, so, but she's here to talk today from a legal perspective. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Both Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So what does your day job look like as the mobilization assistant? That's my reserve job, and okay. it is quite okay. dynamic. So I've been a, a mobilization assistant since about 2011 when I went to UConn. So this is the first job I've had as a reservist in 10 years inside the Pentagon. That's one floor up from my day job. So my commute is much easier than going to Germany, Alabama, or Texas. So I'm essentially the pinch, pinch hitter, if you will, or the alter ego for Lieutenant General Richardson, who's the military deputy for Dr. Roper. So I sometimes consider myself a professional meeting attender, but so I have to try to keep a speed with everything that's going on because I'm representing them at a number of meetings with uh, OSD, also Secretary of Defense, or the Joint Staff, or the interagency. So I often go out and do speaking engagements on their behalf as well. Could you explain what that office does, Dr. Roper's office? So they're the oversight mechanism for the Air Force on all acquisition programs. He's the senior acquisition executive for the Air Force. So all the oversight of the program executive offices for every acquisition program and the lab as well. I mean, he is the oversight for the Secretary of the Air Force. Oh, that's huge. Like, yeah. when we oh, think yeah. about... His uh, responsibility like... is huge. Absolutely. Do you have any um, challenges in this job as, as we watch uh, ideas and programs grow, go through the full research and development process? So, you know, Dr. Roper is trying to make everything go faster right now. So he's pushing a lot on innovation, and it's, uh, it seems to be working because it seems like the culture, and I'm not sure if you're seeing it at your level, but there's innovation coming up from all the squadrons. We just did a, um, a spark tank event at the AFA, Air Force Association's uh, Warfare Symposium in Orlando. They had about five or six finalists out of like 300 projects that came up, and they, they won the trophy anywhere from a battery, a mechanical battery pull to all these new database and uh, visualization tools that are just coming up from just the squadrons. It's not even coming from the lab or even from the product, the program offices. They're actually coming out of the squadron. So the innovation is like spreading across the Air Force and the, the whole culture is changing, which is great. Yeah, it's every, everyone's innovating. The, the spark tanks are kind of like, well, shark tank, if you've seen it on exactly. where people give their pitch and then... Um, leadership or a select team kind of weighs on him. Yeah, and Elon Musk was at the event, too. Oh, wow. Last week, yeah, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> so in this current position, then, what would you say some of the more um, spectacular, very cool programs or even technologies you've seen that we're able to talk about now? Most of it I've been dealing with is the AQ Ventures. That's the uh, pitch days and all the things coming through small business. We're expanding the whole defense industrial base with these new companies. We've I've 
like thousands of awards have been done at, at differing levels with the small business innovation research dollars and we're getting new ideas it's, it's not the old think of just the, the folks that have been doing business with the Air Force for a long time we're getting all these new ideas and we're getting venture capital companies to invest their money into this too so it's like a two-fold win okay so that's the the venture part yeah, of yeah. so we have venture capitalists actually putting their money into these when they see some new idea and they see something that could potentially grow they're putting their money in that investment wow so is the thought there then that this helps the air force but Absolutely. it but it can also help this uh, independent industry because of this exactly. innovation because so much of what we do well things that have developed in the lab are now part of everybody's everyday life exactly and so we've had there's a lot of barriers to entry to try to get into our industrial base so we're trying to open that up and they're letting contracts within 15 minutes and swiping a credit card and putting money in their account right away so that's how fast these are happening it's a little different than absolutely the past. Yeah. it's changing and, and the whole paradigm yeah. important to the small business too so they can absolutely. get get moving and they don't have to wait yeah. and they're actually going to get it's not just going to be um the studies and analysis piece they're actually going to be able to bend metal too they're actually able to provide products to the Air Force. It's oh. not just studies. It's great. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, really speeding up the process, which yeah. is important for our innovative like uh, system. Does Absolutely. that make sense? Yeah. And to quantify that in your position and others around you, um, how many of these, um, you, you mentioned you go to a lot of events, see a lot of these um, programs, like how much do you think you see on average, even in a month, you have to kind of vet, look through, and help the Air Force? I did two pitch days. I did one for the F-35 of Think about that. That's that blows my mind. That you're actually doing. You're bringing in new companies to work in the F-35. That's yeah. something I would never thought we were going to do. And I did one for the Rapid Sustainment Office out in uh, San Francisco, downtown San Francisco, where we brought in all these new ideas. It's just I think it's opening up the aperture, and so it's not. And they're getting even the F-35 to think differently about how they're actually enact or operate the aircraft, and they're bringing in uh, different operating systems. A lot of the software now is at Kessel Run. I think you guys have heard of Kessel Run up in uh, Cambridge. I didn't realize there's 700 people up there. And there's a my friend of mine, uh, Brian Bieskowski, is a reservist. He's a colonel. He's going to be running it in the fall. So we'll have a, a reservist running that operation. Well, that's amazing. A lot of people don't realize how big these teams are around the nation. They're small business, but you got to think. They have brilliant people. Yeah, like I said, almost 700 ready for the project. You're doing DevSecOps, all that sort of uh, software. Um, all the Alice program that was under F-35 is now being done of the Kessel Run. Okay. So, Could you explain Kessel Run to our So basically it's a software, it's basically software on steroids. Uh, okay. They've they brought in a lot of folks that have commercial software uh, experience and they're trying to push that into the DOD. Not just the Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop's actually mm-hmm. you know, hiring their own software. We're trying to put it into a center of excellence up in Cambridge where some of the smartest people in the world are. So oh, yeah. It's really, we're really leveraging a lot of the commercial practices for that. Move yeah. faster that way. Absolutely. <laughs> and a great Star Wars reference for those who have <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah, Like Mad Hatter, there's a bunch of them popping up around the, around the country. And with the full like, R&D process, because you really see the full research and development almost from start to finish, like you mentioned, but a much faster acquisition rate than we have seen in the past, um, what are some of the snags that you see outside of kind of the expediency we see now that um, are we still kind of innovating and getting past? It seems to be the bureaucracy sometimes in the Pentagon. So uh, with the new legislation we've had to push down to middle-tier acquisitions and we're pushing down even the program record, the milestone decision authority from Office of Secretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, Ms. Ellen Lord, they have pushed down that almost all the programs that are not major development programs, uh, cat, Category 1 and mm-hmm. Category 1s, 
All that has been pushed down to the Air Force to Will Roper, uh, to the Secretary of the Air Force, who is in turn delegated to Will Roper. He's trying to push even further down to the permanent executive officers. So getting rid of that layer of bureaucracy has been great and pushing it down. Now that whole staff, they're wondering, what do they do now? So, so they're still trying to exercise that oversight, but how, how do we go about reporting to them without creating new products just for them? We're trying to just share, share amongst uh, whatever the PEOs are using to oversee their programs and just share that data with, with the OSD oversight mechanism. So it, we're still learning as we go, hmm. um, and there's still some old habits that we haven't broken yet. So just kind of loosening up that bureaucracy, is, it's, it's helping. You see it in spots, it's helping. And we have some challenges with some of the major programs, like the KC-46, trying to get the uh, refueling piece of that. And Dr. Roper is currently the action officer on that. <laughs> he has personally gone to all the uh, all the prime and then some of the vendors, and he's been here quite a bit to uh, try to make, see how Boeing is going to fix up some of those issues. It seems like we have a plan that looks like it's, it's finally going to work. Well, that's great. Yeah. yeah, like you mentioned, it's a process, but it sounds like we're going not only the right direction, but going there quickly, which is awesome. Absolutely. So we're taking great steps forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but taking a few steps back then, uh, so how did you get to this point in your career? You've had, as we've seen <laughs> and we've read, like you've done a lot in your career. So what led you to this point? So I started here. So I watched that pilot training in 1988 uh, at Laughlin Air Force Base. And a colonel named Don Tedmeyer called me when I was on casual status playing golf in, in, in Del Rio, Texas. And he, as a second lieutenant, you had a colonel call you, you and he asked you to do something, you pretty much could say yes. So yeah. he said, how about, how about coming to work for me at Wright-Patterson? I said, okay. And then I had to hang up the phone. I said, where's Wright-Patterson? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's close to Delaware. I'm from Delaware. So I ended up here in the Human Resources Lab up at Building 190. It was a Logistics and Human Factors Division. And I worked in an office with four ladies and me as a second lieutenant, who I'm going to have lunch with today. <laughs> so Wonderful, to yeah. And it was just great. I, I loved it. I worked for a guy, uh, and then when Colonel Tetmeyer retired, Colonel Jim Clark came in as the as the new director, or I guess he was a commander. Um, and he's one of those mentors that has just shaped my whole career. Uh, he, the quote was that I was always wondering why he's giving me so much work to do. He's like, if I want something done, I'll give it to somebody who's busy. So he gave me a lot of work. So you know, if you're busy, you're having fun. So. And it, it, the atmosphere in the lab is just so much fun. It was back then, and I know it is today. Oh, so, ab- yeah. absolutely. It's when different. When you get to have fun at work, it just makes it all that much better. Yeah. A lot of smart people and, and yeah. fun, too. A lot yeah. of sarcasm. The smarter you get people, the more sarcastic they are, I think. And that, I mean, that led the whole foundation of you know my views of the acquisition world and the laboratory. And I've stayed involved with the laboratory since then. I've been with the scientific advisory board that does the S&T reviews. So I, I've always had touches with the laboratory, so it's been great. Great. And with what your um, the mentor said, like, you know, always getting work to stay busy, has that kind of helped you now? Like you said, you're juggling almost two jobs now, so that's helped you kind of keep yeah. on track with that? Yeah. I'm not going to do it, know what to do it myself when I retire. <laughs> if I only have one job, I'm really going to. I'll drive my wife crazy, I think. Um, <laughs> we can take up Spanish, maybe. Oh, <laughs> we were talking about that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I should. Finally, I took it in high school. I tried to do it when my kids were in immersion program and it's not sticking because I if you don't practice it it just won't stick mm-hmm. so. and is that something you kind of recommend to like either future airmen or airmen joining it now just saying hey if you find it like a, an idea or an organization you like just throw yourself in there absolutely immerse. yeah and if I always tell people if you're not having fun go do something else 
And with the lab, I've always found, and most of the people I've ever talked to love it in the lab. I've been to all the directorates, so, and I've seen that everywhere. That's great. Did you enjoy the human factors work? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Because we did an integrated management information thing, which is basically before we had tablets or iPads and stuff. It was basically a plug-in maintenance aid that you plug into the airplane. It had all the tech orders on it, so it would be able to do diagnostics, and you didn't have to sit there and look at a tech order book. So we, that was at the edge of make, making everything go digital. So all those tech orders were digitized and put in this maintenance aid, and we're just trying to help the, the uh the mechanics and, and the, the folks on the flight line make it easier to work on the airplane. So working with technology almost that ahead at the time, is that kind of giving oh, yeah. you a better eye now for looking Absolutely. at like future tech, like that's what we need, this is it, where we exactly. should go? Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and I didn't realize at the time, I didn't know what human factors was. It's basically how you interface with technology. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, if somebody can't use it, the interface, and this is back before we had, I think, I, I, I think my first Macintosh was when I was at the lab. I had a Mac CI. Hey, very cool. <laughs> so, and I know the uh, C17 operating system was for one of the first ones we ever did on the Macintosh. Uh, I had no idea. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's cool. Yeah, C17 was just being built when I was here, and so was the S22. So you get to see a lot of, outside of getting different like human interface sections for that, do you watch a lot of the development of these aircraft? Absolutely, yeah. I got to watch, I mean, so General Fane was running the uh, F22 program here. It was called advanced tactical fighter back and then so our lab was we we interfaced on that program all the time oh that's um, so cool so it is it it just being watching the program be be birthed so to speak here at right pat was just between that and the c17 those were the two major programs going through here yeah that's just so cool especially seeing them flying now like you're like oh, i was yeah. part of that like that's a source of pride that's really cool oh, yeah actually i saw driving here it was c17 yeah, we hear them, hear them all the time. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, there's so much of human factors that we just take for granted in our everyday thing, whether it's even the voice in our GPS may have been picked because that tone or whether it's a male or female voice, we might be more likely to listen to it. You know, it's crazy. It's everywhere. What's funny is I worked on the A-9 Sidewinder program, the air-to-air -air missile, and we were doing a new sort of digital upgrade to it for so it would counter some countermeasures that were being used against it. We put it in operational test, and we got thrown at oper operational test because the tone wasn't the same tone that the pilots were hearing before we made the modification. Interesting. So just that little thing, we had to go back and make sure that it sounded just like the... Because that, that had a distinct reaction for them. If they heard a, a tone, the uh, enemy aircraft would pop off flares, and if, if it gave it a certain tone, you wouldn't pickle the missile, so to speak. So there, there were all these really intricate things that were done, and if they didn't have that specific tone, so we had to recreate that in the digital world. It was an analog system. We were trying to recreate it in digital. So wow. it was really interesting. It's comprehensive, yeah. And you wouldn't think yeah. about that. I mean, spur yeah. of the moment, you need to make sure they are on point and nothing's distracting them. So and when they came back close, they were like, really? <laughs> Is that different? And when you listen to them, yeah, they were. And that That's so cool. Yeah. So, yeah, you got to listen to the pilots. The operators are always going to be right with them. So in that position then, I imagine you had a lot of chances, you and your team, to speak with pilots directly, or is this Absolutely. feedback you'd get? Yeah, yep. and they were all, most of them were test pilots, and okay. like, wait, when you listen to this tone, and listen to that one, it's, it's a different tone, so you have wow. to make it just like the, the old ones. Yeah, because if not, then you have to, yeah. I mean, there would be years of conditioning and retraining these and pilots. And it wasn't easy, it. it was really interesting how we had to do that. 
So with all this technology you've been working with more recently, um, where do you see the Air Force heading here, even going into 2030? Like, how do you see us uh, either changing in terms of either human integration, technology? So Dr. Roper, if you ever, if you saw his speeches at AFA in uh, National Harbor and the one just in Orlando, he, he talks about digital engineering. Getting things down to a 3D model and being able to design it down to that level. So if you have a digital model and you're able to digitize the whole manufacturing process down to the jig and the person and how you interface. You can you cut down the number of parts that you're building, consolidate some of those things, 3D print them and all that. By the time you go to build the final assembly, it's like building your 100th unit because you have that much knowledge on how everything's going to fit with a digital model. That's just going to revolutionize how people make airplanes, make weapons, you name it. He's looking towards the digital century series and how we're going to build new aircraft, you know, you're no longer going to be a prisoner to the platform where you can sit there and upgrade it and manipulate it, you know, while it's sort of building a plane in the air. Absolutely, yeah. Cut down the time a lot. Absolutely. Time is money. And, and it'll, you know, like 80% of the cost of any weapon system is in sustainment, so being able to sustain it and know when parts are going to fail and being able to have replacements, you can print them out in the field, you don't have to come through the whole supply chain. That's just going to revolutionize that, how we maintain aircraft as well. It's huge. Like we've yeah. talked to a few people beforehand about it. And the idea that you can even run tests, mock tests, exactly. in a platform yeah. to make sure like this yeah. should work, you're right, it'll yeah. save time, money, everything. Yes, <laughs> you want to fly as many sorties. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Test flights, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's, I mean, truly the future, which a lot of people aren't either aware of or a lot of industry people have been working on this is just the populace, a lot of civilians have not heard it yet. If we're still using gas. Very true, <laughs> yeah. Who knows at this point? <laughs> Could be transitioning. Yeah, yeah. yeah hypersonics is one things I think it'll lend itself to. I think that's going to be sort of the new thing is we can get things, uh, effects people uh, to places around the world in seconds. That, that's just going to revolutionize how we even, not just fight wars, but how we transport things. And along those lines as well, um, do you have a specific researcher or piece of technology like hypersonics or digital engineering that's really inspired you through your career? So, yeah, I I got the pleasure of working with uh, Bert Rutan from Scale Composites. I'm not sure if he's the one that's built all the experimental aircraft and and the Virgin Atlantic sort of series. I forget what the one, the the space plane that won the X Prize for going to, to taking somebody to space. He was like one of these pioneers that he worked for the scientific advisory. He was one of our members back when I was a captain. And he sprang, you know what Polaroid pictures are? Yeah, they were high tech back then. So he used to bring these pictures to our meetings and just show them to us and all these experimental airplanes, you know, like forward swept wings and all these things that he was working on. And just it's that so totally cool. inspired me. And then he also was a uh, small plane advocate and general aviation guy. We made a mistake of bringing him into the FAA and they're diametrically opposed. Because <laughs> he's trying to do experimental and they're trying to control, you know, the sort of safety and things like mm-hmm. that. He was pushing the other. So just working with all, you know, get the, um, the senior scientists that work for the scientific advisory board get to see how they act and how they, how they review the, the lab programs and sort of how they're trying to help bring in some of that commercial and, and um, just provide that insight that they're, you know, 100-pound brain folks that just, yeah, so I got to, to see a lot of that. It's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating, especially working with somebody that brilliant. Like, it's amazing you're right yeah. to see how that can be so opposed to what we're used to seeing in the Air Force, but how they can, you need that sometimes yeah. to work together. 
Yeah. And folks like Elon Musk, I've met him several times. Uh, been in, I was in SpaceX back when they were in one garage warehouse. Oh, wow. They really got big, yeah. yeah I was That's working cool. for General Cartwright as the vice chairman, and we got to visit there, and it was really fascinating. So, I mean, stepping into that field real quick, so what is it like working with Elon? Like, you know, people read about him all the time. He's online, just absolutely but. brilliant, and he's always pushing the edge. He's, he's trying to think outside the box. Uh, him, him and uh, Jeff Bezos, I mean, always thinking outside the box. Um, and he, uh, he was, they were both trying to do new sort of space programs, and it was, that whole uh, business sector was locked down by Boeing, Lockheed, the, the big prime, and he decided he wanted to go outside of that. He hired a lot of the folks that were working there that were, felt frustrated, and he just built this new rocket, and, and it worked. He had a lot of successful failures, and that's what you need to do, but now it, it's, it's, it's another alternative to the launch sector, and it's really doing well. Yeah, look at him now. He proved that he could you know, build a whole new company around space flight. So we've been talking about you know really smart people, you know 100, 100 patent brains like Elon or Jeff Bezos or our own scientists and engineers even down at the, the squadron level. Our scientists and engineers have to do a lot of things. You know, they have to be good at science and, and push the boundaries and be innovative. They have to be good communicators to talk about their science, but we also need them to be aware of things like intellectual property. Um, Saber, we asked you to join in too, because as our kind of a legal counsel at AFRL, you have, you're kicking off some initiatives to help train our SNEs, our scientists and engineers about uh, protecting their ideas. Could you t- explain what IP is to us? Sure. So intellectual property is intangible creations of the human mind. So the well- most well-known types of IP are patents, trademarks, trade secrets, and copyrights. The Air Force Research Laboratory is developing an intellectual property onboarding training program with the University of Dayton School of Law under an education partnership agreement. The purpose of the training is to increase the general IP awareness and knowledge across AFRL. So AFRL has a cutting edge when it comes to understanding the business basics of intellectual property. For example, who and when AFRL researchers should partner and collaborate with in industry and academia. Additionally, this training will increase AFRL's knowledge base and understanding in the areas of technology transfer and commercialization. In other words, looking at that entire bench to business process. So, sir, what is your connection to the training? So, the bottom line on protecting IP is uh, we'll never be able to maintain our technological advantage over our adversaries and, and if we keep giving our trade secrets away. Um, just like OPSEC and other uh, ways we protect data or information, we've got to be conscious of how we protect it, uh, either it's classified or unclassified, because the, the warfighter is depending on new capabilities, and if we keep giving it away, we're never going to have that advantage over our adversaries. So they're going to be just right there when we have the latest technology. They're going to get it right away. So we can never get separation. So in your opinion, is intellectual property a buzzword or does it have staying power? Should we care about creating and protecting intellectual property? Well, you have to, because the chief staff of the Air Force, I was with him last week at uh, AFA, uh, Air Force Association uh, Warfare Symposium, where he was interacting with some of the big uh, uh, industrial partners, and he was basically saying to them, we need to have an adult conversation about data. You keep, you keep hoarding all the data. We need to be able to be able to harness that, be able to share that with our industrial partners, yet protect it from our adversaries. So he is really keen on, on intellectual property and data rights. And the whole uh, thing, what we're doing with the joint air dominance, uh, the, the 
ABMS and how we share data and be able to have every aircraft sensor weapon be able to talk to each other so you can command and control it. That's all about data. It's all about sharing data. But you also, in that environment, you're still protecting the intellectual property. So that's the secret to this. The, the, the new warfare is going to be, it's all going to be about data. And how do you protect it? Well, not just to, just to clarify that. So mm-hmm. that's a challenge because you have all these different platforms with different proprietary exactly. systems yes. that you're trying to get to talk to each other and, and share. The, and the companies don't want to share that data because they think they're going to lose money by doing that. We're telling them you have to share that data so they are so they be able to talk to each other, and we're 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 also saying we're going to be able to protect that within the family, so to speak, without giving it away to our adversaries. That's really hard to do, and it's a, it's a paradigm shift for these mm-hmm. companies. So uh, that's why they're a little bit reluctant to do it. Well, it's good that we're having the conversation and yeah. and bringing them to the table to renegotiate yeah. the data rights. Absolutely, yeah. And so, as far as intellectual property is concerned, there's the data rights piece of it, which is more on the acquisition side of the house. And then from an AFRL perspective, there is the uh, patent protection. Because our researchers in AFRL are uh, creating, inventing new technologies. So, for AFRL researchers, it's what do we need to know uh, from a business standpoint about uh, when is uh, a creation or invention patentable? <laughs> Who do I talk to when I think that I have uh, an invention that needs to be protected? And so those are the conversations we're trying to have here in, in AFRL about protecting patentable technologies. Or if, it, if your technology is not patentable, what are the licensing rights with partners? But understanding that the data rights issue of intellectual property is huge issue across the Air Force. Yeah, so I think we're looking at yeah. two different types of... They're, they're both important on different scales, but it's just the education piece yeah. is where we're at, I think. I look, I, I look at this like, um, if you watch Shark Tank a lot, almost the first thing that the, the investors look at, do you have a patent on that? Do you own... How are you going to license it? And those are the two biggest things they try to do. Is have, they want to be able to patent whatever technology you have and then be able to license it so you can actually sell it. So yes. they're, they're, they're What's the value? Yeah, what, their motivation is dollars. And Absolutely. And create a market and speed the market. Um, I think that we need to look through, it that, that, through that same sort of lens. How do we get lethal technology to help with our national defense strategy? How do we get that to the warfighters and protect that data? in order to have a technological advantage. That's the biggest thing that I think our researchers need to be conscious of. And then your new program, the way that this is going to uh, educate them, you'll have resources at your fingertips to be able to do that. If I have a question, I know who to go to. Yes. And then there's going to be a team of folks that are experts on how you harness that or how you package it into either a license or a patent. Yeah, so streamlining the process. Absolutely. Opening up channels of communication across AFRL and with our AFMC, Air Force Material Command, patent attorneys, and knowing who to talk, when our researchers should talk to technology transfer specialists, the patent attorneys, the, lo- the other lawyers like me. And so it's, that's why AFRL should care about intellectual property. And a lot of these small businesses have experts as well. I think some they of the do. small companies that they're working with will 
look at who actually owns that data, the company via the contract, and that's where negotiating the right contract and the way you do data rights within the contract is really key, is like make sure you know who's gonna own the data at the end of that contract. What, yes. what are the deliverables, what do the government own versus the contract? Well, and having the people who are negotiating the contracts and writing the contracts smart on what what's happening now, but also thinking strategically 10 years from now, how is this contract going to affect the Air Force? Absolutely. And so it's, yeah, getting our, getting our folks smarter on these issues and to think more long-term. And the same here in AFRL, that's the purpose of the intellectual property training for us here in AFRL is just thinking about business basics. We're not expecting scientists and engineers to be, you know, business professionals if they don't want to be, but just to have the, the basic knowledge, working, understanding knowledge of how to identify intellectual property and then what do I do with it once I've identified it and what's the appropriate process and certain uh, rules like don't disclose your intellectual property at a conference or with your colleagues because then you've now lost all foreign rights to that intellectual property and now the patent attorneys have to work even harder and faster <laughs> because now you have a one-year deadline and that window is and that time is your click your the time is is shortened to uh, protect that intellectual property so just getting folks smarter on those issues so it's like once they publicly disclose, share, disclose it then that's when clock. the clock starts Yes, yeah, so the United States is a first inventor to file versus a first inventor to uh, create. So rule system, it's, it's, it's more efficient for the United States Patent and Trademark Office to award patents. Sure. Uh, when you have someone who's uh, first to file, first inventor to file the, the research, uh, or invention, they may not be the first to have invented it, but the first to have filed it, and so thus they they win the patent. Uh, and it's just educating our folks on. We know you're excited to go talk about what you've created uh, in your collaborations at workshops and and conferences, and but as soon as it's it's disclosed uh, via some sort of electronic. Uh, transmission, whether that's internet or uh, it, written. So if it's on a poster, you're at a conference, or you're talking to colleagues about it who did not help you create your uh, technology, you've disclosed. And that you, you absolutely have to start talking to patent attorneys immediately once you do that, because you may have already lost your right to a patent. So these are just some of the areas we're trying to make our researchers more aware of. And I think just having a consistent dialogue across the lab, across the enterprise of do's and don'ts, best practices. Is this, is this a challenge, you know, outside the fence too, like academic labs and maybe maybe not as much in the, I don't know if it's a, an issue in, in the GE Lockheed Boeing, so maybe they just have it ingrained in, in the culture there, you know, that, you know, they have their patent wall and this is what you should be doing, you should be aspiring to, because there's, there's money, like inherent money rather than, you know, the mission behind it. That's part of the competition within the industry is being able to protect the data rights so that you could, you actually are the one selling to the government. Okay. That's a challenge. Well, then do we have, like, a challenge, too, that people don't know when they they want to disclose things like that, too? Like, yes. I, I mean, 
because because you know we're, we're in a national security business. Do we want to tell people? Yeah. You know, what's well, a balance? You're trying to collaborate and move move that technology ahead, but you, you still have to have be mindful of when it's time to protect it as well. And that's that's a really hard thing. That's the challenge. It's really hard for folks to know how when, how and when to do it. So could there actually or have been instances where we develop something, but someone else could file it before us, and then we have to buy it back from yes. them? Essentially? Yes. Wow. Yes. So ouch. that's <laughs> yes. That, that's a serious okay. ouch. So okay. yeah. just wow. some of the uh, issues that we're trying to make researchers aware of sure. pitfall potential pitfalls in intellectual property developing intellectual property and having a just a we just a general awareness understanding of intellectual property bus- best business practices could save the Air Force a lot of money going forward and save us uh, technology. Yeah. So. Sounds like you just, just have to be very cognizant of communication. So it's like very much what can I say at what level should I speak? Yes. And then who should I go talk to? Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> who are the experts that, that I need to talk to? And I'm always of the mindset that talk to your technology transfer specialists and your office of research and techno- technology applications. They have a direct line to the patent attorneys and the other legal counsel uh, that may be looped in for general awareness. So just go straight to your technology transfer specialist in your, in your technical directorates, and they will get you to the people that, that you need to talk to because that's their job. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're the liaison. So. Interesting. And you, you deal with them. So, you deal with so we do it at the top level. I mean, with the, the senior leadership is very uh, uh, keen on making sure we protect data rights from the chief and the secretary of the Air Force down to Dr. Roper and throughout the, all the program executive officers. They're very concerned about this because the theft is in the $300 billion sort of realm. And if you're giving up that many secrets, Per year. Per year, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, because, so, you know, here, I don't want to, Hey, Napster, you know, or LimeWire or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. We think about like stealing, you know, everyday person stealing like music and, and yeah. the rights there, or we think about other countries, you know, stealing our data because they don't have the same respect for intellectual property or something. That's what you think of, but I, I never really thought about it in the yeah. frame of our own country, our own indus- yeah, industry yeah. base, and the, the competition there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't frame it like that before. China, China has campaigns to steal this, not just they have actual strategies on how they go about trying to steal our, our intellectual property, not just ours, all around the world. So they're really, really good at it. Yeah, and that's definitely pushed the data security like that, yeah. uh, that yeah. field as well to make sure we don't lose said uh, information. So, sir, in your mind, is that the tangible incentive for Air Force and AFRL employees, researchers, to care about protecting intellectual property? Is that what's going to our adversaries? Absolutely. They're, they're, they're actually uh, trying to steal as much as they possibly can in order to get an advantage. And, and for us, the bottom line is how do we get the capabilities of lethality to the warfighters without giving it away to China or Russia or, or whoever else is trying to steal it? So. so it's being thoughtful in who we're collaborating with, why we're collaborating with them. Always be suspect. And, and have the right safeguards in place. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you think we can do in our day-to-day to reduce the risk of IP theft and loss? I mean, there's just the, the general awareness of uh, who and why you're collaborating. I think it's just um, having uh, the actual discipline and, and the rigor in who you're collaborating with, uh, who you're hiring, 
uh, what students or universities you're working with, make sure you're vetting them properly. Um, there's all kinds of uh, uh, resources here at Wright Pat for, for you to do that. AFOSI has, has folks that are professional about doing background investigations and checks on who you're working with. So they will know if they're known intel officers and things like that. So uh, just make sure you're, you're very diligent about how and who you're collaborating with and, and make sure you vet them. That's what really what it comes down to. Know who you're working with and know who they are working with. <laughs> yeah, and that can be hard too, especially yeah. if you find someone with a piece of technology or something you may really need. You may yeah. just be like, yeah, I need to make this connection now, but got to take that step back. Yeah, yeah. and our AFOSI is Air Force Office of Special Investigations. So yeah. Yes, or your local security yeah. office also. So uh, they're very helpful in knowing and understanding uh, some of these basics and then looping in yeah. Office of Special Investigation if need be. So in your foreign disclosure officer, we have one in AFRL, making them aware, bringing them into the conversation yeah. is that, useful. Yeah, definitely good to know in case you do have any questions who to re- or reach out to. Excuse me. There are plenty of resources here, right, Pat? It's important, people. So make sure you pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been great conversation and given us a lot to think about. And we appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you you so much. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.